everyone. Welcome to the special Internet of Things podcast, CES edition. We're able to do this podcast thanks to the sponsorship of the Open Connectivity Foundation. The OCF is helping devices on the Internet of Things talk to each other in a standardized way, regardless of their manufacturer, the operating system, or the transport protocol used. OCF is developing a specification that will enable IoT devices to talk to each other in a secure, standard way, thus making them interoperable. We're going to hear more from the Foundation in a few minutes after we get through some news and other interviews. You're going to want to stay tuned because after the news, we're going to look ahead to see what companies should expect in 2017. We're also going to deal with business models, consumer trends, and even discuss a few ways of tackling the problem of device longevity. So, let's get started! First off, there's no Kevin in the show, it's all me and different versions of me from the CES showroom floor, so there's going to be a little bit of noise in the background for some of these, and some people are going to say the Amazon Echo's name. So, consider yourself warned, but this is a fun show, I'm doing something a little different. Here we go. I love all of the gadgets on display at CES, but my first job was to try to establish some sort of baseline for the smart home. Are we there yet when it comes to mass adoption? Will this year be the year? But maybe that was the wrong question. Corey Cerise, the vice president of Connected Platforms for Chamberlain, explains that maybe we won't know if we're there until we actually get there. You know, we launched our first Connected Garage Opener in 2011. It's hard to even think back to the time when only 35% of people had smartphones which really makes it hard for adoption to be possible if one of the requirements is to have a mobile device that you can download software on. So since then, we're at well north of 70%. I think um, most people are comfortable with the idea of apps, right? And we're starting to move into the technology getting easy enough for people to bring it in their homes. And uh, the experience on your, your phone is getting to the point where I think most people, right, the masses are getting ready for understanding that you can do that. You know, I think there's a lot of building blocks happening. And it's interesting, conversations we have in the industry, there's this idea that there's going to be like this big bang moment and all of a sudden there's going to be a big marketing event and like a day's going to happen and the whole home is going to be available. Like you'll just go to retail and it'll all be merchandised perfectly and everyone's going to understand it. It's really been much less exciting than that. But what I would say is, you know, we've done a lot of work with HomeKit over the last couple of years and we're proud to announce that this week. Uh, and see that progress. And really, that's one of a few different emerging standards that's really widely available to people. If you have an iPhone, you, you already have the Home app. So do you think HomeKit is going to be the tipping point or that one moment? Well, I said there would be no one moment, Stacey. So I'm not sure there is one moment. But I think what you know Amazon's doing with Alexa is really impressive. The folks at Samsung are doing a great job and starting to really widen out what they're doing with smart things. Nest has done a fantastic job. And Google, as part of that story, is really interesting to watch. So as, as just a player that makes garage openers, I don't have any great forecasts there other than to say that I think that there are some really interesting building blocks that are happening over time. Jason Johnson, the CEO of August, had more real talk to offer about adoption of the smart home. 
I think that there are more products in, in more homes. And to say that there's more smart homes might be a bit of a, a strong term to use. We're seeing these individual point solutions appear in homes, and then, and then people get a second item and a third item. In terms of smart homes, I think we're still you know, less than 6% of homes in North America are what we would call a smart home that's you know, truly connected, kind of like your home, Stacy, and my home. Um, so we have a lot of work to do to really create smart homes. But you know, people are experimenting and they're trying these different devices and they get really satisfied with one and then they try a second one. And that, you know, that's the new trend. Aside from the smart home, there were smart everythings at the show, from smart hairbrushes to smart sunshades all the way over to toys for children. It was crazy. So I found Ed Zitron, the head of EZPR, who is a smart home early adopter and a general skeptic, to get a perspective from someone who isn't selling anything smart or connected. I wanted to get his take on the state of gadgets at CES. He starts off by telling me what he has in his home. At my home, I have two Echoes. I have one Dot downstairs. I have about 13, 12, maybe, Wemo lights and a smattering of things like a thermostat. And how do you feel about your home today? Is it really smart? It actually is. And the other day I lost my internet connection and found myself in like a really stroppy state, like a childish state where I was like, yeah, can't tell my Echo to turn off the lights. And I have a smart things connection as well, so I can turn off everything downstairs. So I was like, Alexa, downstairs lights off. And nothing happened. I was like, ah, and I actually got like a child because I actually have been, got used to the internet of things being there and it's become integral to my life, which is a worrying statement, but everything will work without power or light switches will work without internet. So it wasn't the worst thing. I was just being a big baby about it. So now at CES, now that we know that you're kind of like an early adopter aficionado, what do you think of CES so far? This is one of the saddest CESs I've ever seen. It's like the entirety of technology went in like two directions. They said, I'm either going to do a VR or an AR product. Actually, let's say three. I'm going to make a drone for some reason, and they all look the same, or I'm going to do IoT. And it doesn't matter what IoT it is. It's just, I must stick Wi-Fi in this. I am waiting to find like a Wi-Fi colostomy bag or something. It's got ridiculous now to the point of insanity. And there are certain things that I'm sure could be useful with internet in them, but I've seen tons of things which aren't both in person and not in person. What is the most ridiculous thing you have seen? I really think the smart hairbrush is the one thing that got me because a friend had come by yesterday who'd actually used it and apparently she grabbed it and ran it through her hair, which they did not like. And she described it, and I paraphrase, as a cheap CVS hairbrush. So it wasn't even a nice hairbrush. It's 200 bucks and it's like it connects to wi-fi and bluetooth why who knows and it can stop you from breaking your hair i guess they knew how toothbrushes work and so they they were hoping to do that thing where it, like you're brushing too hard except that like hair is different on different people i just think it was just this amazing cluster of bad ideas in one that and the smart shower that costs about $1,200 that doesn't even really think we were kind of having a conversation about this what would make sense if you could set like pressure and heat settings on the shower itself with like two buttons, but apparently they've removed the faucet, you know, that thing that everyone uses forever. And you have to use an app, you know, that great idea, use your phone in the shower. I love having also on top of it, I love having electricity running through very near my pipes. It's a great idea. And you need to, as said friend who came over and talked about the hairbrush, 
mentioned you need to have a professional electrician come in as well as a plumber. So this is like an expensive mistake. He's referring to the Moen shower. We will have one of the Moen representatives justify the shower later on in the show. All right, Ed, you told me you had lots of thoughts about fridges. What are they? Well, there's two things. One, ah, let's make it three. One, I'm tired of people making botnet jokes. They're stupid, they're trite, and it shows a remarkable lack of understanding of how the internet works. But on top of that, why do they keep putting screens on fridges? And why do they keep putting to-do lists in them? Because no one's using them. I really don't know anyone who regularly uses a to-do list outside of the iOS reminders. And I don't need a 29-inch screen on my fridge. And somehow these people, these PR geniuses, are like, you know what? We have the ability for you to see inside your fridge without opening it. Now, let's not hype that. Let's hype the fact you can put Pandora on it. It's just there's so many bad. They're doing these things that are not built for real people. And it sucked. LG and Samsung, I believe, both did really, like, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's true. For most people, the idea of a two-load washer or dryer is actually pretty cool. So these washer dryers are brilliant. So you can, they're both top-loading and front-loading. So you can put in, say, you have a bunch of towels and you have some shirts that need to be put on delicate. So you can wash the towels, normal or jumbo or whatever setting you put your towels on. And on the top, you can put in your shirts or any other delicates. And saves you a wash. And it actually probably saves water, even if you're just doing one smaller load. Was there anything that you liked? Well, like I said, those washer dryers. I mean, I think that's actually, of the last three CESs, that's the one thing I saw. I went, wow, that's actually a big deal. I almost feel bad I bought a washer dryer last year. I'm excited about that washing machine. But I, too, found that Moen faucet idea ridiculous. So I found Michael Pillow, a senior product manager at Moen, ask why they replaced the faucet with this weird button pad thing. We looked at a lot of different designs and the modern look of that controller with all the buttons is what, what led us to it. We did a lot of consumer research around the size of the buttons, the look of the buttons, the texture, the way they're raised off the controller to make it easy to use without actually looking at the controller. So you can actually know exactly what the orientation is of your changing temperature, changing outlets, turning the shower on and off without actually looking at it. Is this better than a faucet? It is better. So it's a thermostatic digital shower system that precisely controls temperature. So no longer do you have to guess what temperature your shower is. You get a digital readout in your shower knowing exactly what it is. You get a personalized shower every single time. Could I connect it to my Amazon Echo and tell Echo to start me a 110 degree shower? You cannot. Not at the moment. So it is, it is not connected to any home automation systems. Is that a, maybe something y'all would do? It's something that we were looking at and seeing if there's any opportunities there. But we want to make sure we have the right consumer experience and have a product that works flawlessly in the marketplace. So what is the business opportunity here for Moen? So this is something that we're looking at as a trend in the marketplace. It's something we see consumers are desiring. It's why we've done research and we've done work to bring this product to market. And after hunting down the Moen folks, I ran into Neil Orchowski from Lutron to talk about its news from the show. We're announcing a couple new things uh, for CES, one being SmartThings integration. You can now, through the SmartThings app, control your Caseta wireless lights and shades. Uh, this integration will be launching uh, sometime early 2017. And we're also announcing new Nest integration. So we already have integration with the Nest Learning Thermostat, with Nest Protect. And now we're announcing integration with the Nest Cam, both the indoor and outdoor Nest Cam, so that if the camera sees a person, you can program your lights to automatically turn on to make it look like you're still there. So the SmartThings integration requires a Lutron bridge and a SmartThings bridge, yes? Yes, that's correct. 
Lutron was really early in integrating with some of the new players in the smart home DIY kind of area. Can you explain kind of how that's helped the company? Well, it certainly helped the company. And with Caseta Wireless specifically, we've tried to be on the forefront of working with all the, the best brands in the industry. So we originally launched our smart bridge technology for control of lights throughout your home and away from home. We then added HomeKit technology to that smart bridge to work with Apple HomeKit and Siri. And we've been adding additional brands such as Amazon Echo and Sonos and Nest and now SmartThings to really round out the ecosystem within your home. Will we ever see Lutron put their radios in a hub like they did with Wink again? We are open to exploring embedding our technology into other products if it's the right fit for the customer. I also finally got the scoop on the new standard for device-to-device communications. Hi, Tobin. Everybody here knows what Zigbee is. So most of us, though, don't know what dot dot is. Can you explain that for me? Yeah, we're taking the heritage and the uh, huge implementation of Zigbee products and what we've been able to bring to market and taking that application layer, that part of it that describes what the devices are. And we're making that available over any IP-based network. And we're really excited to be partnering with a thread group to help bring that to market first. And we're looking forward to seeing all sorts of devices talking dot dot across thread-based networks and then in the future, other IP-based networks. This means I could eventually have dot dot talking over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Anything that's IP-based should be able to talk dot dot, and that's the that's the vision, and that's what we're uh, that's what we're bringing to market, along with hundreds of other member companies that are are active in the Thread Group and the Zigbee Alliance and many others. So, if I'm a developer and I'm like, "What the dot dot? I don't know what I'm going to do with this." Can you explain to me what the goal is at this layer? The goal at this layer is really to give intelligence to the different devices that are on the various networks. And so I can tell a light bulb how to turn on and off. And it doesn't matter whether I'm using a Zigbee network, a Thread network, a Wi-Fi network. I'll be able to make that uh, that part happen a lot more easily uh, with the dot dot. So this sounds like it's competitive with Weave, with IoTivity. Yes? Uh, well, right now we have uh, probably a lot more products actually deployed in the market than those. And uh, we hope to actually be working with uh, these different groups to align and harmonize a lot of what we have in all the different device objects. Awesome. Okay. What should I expect this year from the Alliance? From the Alliance this year, you should really start seeing the, the first products uh, coming out with Dot Dot. You will also see hundreds of products uh, that are already really Dot Dot able through our Zigbee uh, program. And speaking of standards, this is a good time to pop back in with a message from the Open Connectivity Foundation, who is the sponsor for this special CES edition of the Internet of Things podcast. Today, I have Vijay Kesavan, who is chair of the Business Strategy Working Group for OCF. So let's kick it off. Why does the Internet of Things need a standard like the OCF? As a developer, I don't want to focus on putting together the basic plumbing for devices to talk to each other. What I want to do is in an afternoon, I just want to bring a device out of the box and I want to see that it can talk to other devices, which is why a standard is required. And when OCF was put together, it was based on three pillars. One was the need for a standard so that all devices talk the same language. The second is a certification so that a device, once certified by OCF, you know that it can talk to any other OCF certified device. And the third pillar, but also a reference implementation so that to accelerate the development process. So there is an open source implementation of the OCF specification so that developers can take that open source code through a project called IoTivity, and they can build solutions on top of it. So why was the merger with Allseen earlier this year important for the IoT industry? 
So one of the key things to enable Internet of Things is you want a standard for devices to talk to each other. So you want a lot of consolidation. What will be very detrimental is fragmentation of the standards and fragmentation of the industry. Both OCF and Allseen was trying to achieve the same goals. It was very logical for these two organizations to come together. And what's going on with IOTivity and AllJoin? IOTivity is an open source project that is sponsored by Open Connectivity Foundation. And it is reference implementation of the OCF standard. What's going to happen is now that OCF and all team have come together, the first step is we want to make sure the devices from these two ecosystems can talk to each other. So in order to enable that, we are creating a bridge which is going to make sure that transparently devices that talk OCF or that talk all join can talk to each other. And moving forward, we are going to make sure the features that are the best of both worlds can come together in one standard specification. And how can a company get involved with the OCF? There are many ways you can company can get involved in OCF. So first of all, if IoT is a part of your strategy, whether you're building products, whether you're offering services, or providing infrastructure to the IoT space, I think OCF is certainly an organization you should consider joining because by joining the organization, you can influence the strategy and the direction of the consortium. You can influence the specifications, the standardization work that is going on, and you have the ability to certify your products and build products that are OCF compliant. We also encourage people to start using IoTivity to build their products and contribute features into IoTivity. And where can I go to find out more? To get more information about uh, Open Connectivity Foundation, openconnectivity.org is our website. Now, to learn more about IoTivity, the open source implementation, reference implementation for OCS, visit iotivity.org. And we're back with this week's special CES edition of the Internet of Things podcast, sponsored by the Open Connectivity Foundation. We're now moving into some of the deeper conversations I had while I was at CES, such as a fascinating talk with Dr. Michael Bjorn, who is head of research at Ericsson Consumer Labs. He shared predictions with me about technology trends facing us in 2017. All right, Michael, you have put out a list of 10 predictions for this year. I was going to say next year, but it's this year already. And we're not going to go into all of them, but there were a couple that I thought were really exciting. Since it's the IoT podcast, let's hit the IoT predictions first. Yeah, so we have a trend about consumers setting the pace with the Internet of Things. There we, uh, we so we've been asking people about what they think about the Internet of Things. And first of all, we should say that people don't really know what that means, right? So instead, we ask them more concrete things. And one of the things we talked about is the fact that about half of the people we surveyed would like to talk to household appliances as if they were people. Now, if you walk around at CES, you see a lot of that happening right now. And it's actually very much related to a trend that we call AI everywhere as well, because the Internet of Things is kind of one of the first applications, I would say, for AI assistance. So I think you should also be looking at the uptake of all these new AI assistants, that could be a litmus test for how is the speed of Internet of Things actually developing out there. Okay, because I've seen AI toothbrushes, which I was kind of like, oh, I don't know that I need a lot of AI with my teeth but okay. But I've also seen some really interesting things, one of which is autonomous driving, and that is also part of one of your trends. 
Yeah, that's true. But I, I think uh, uh, even though there's lots of cars here and a lot of autonomous cars, I think we still tend to think about the driver perspective for cars. And of course, if, if they're autonomous, there's not going to be any drivers anymore. So we decided, we talked about the passenger pers- perspective before. And this year, we, we decided to focus on other people out there in traffic, pedestrians. As it happens, a quarter of the people we talk to, they would like to actually have all cars being autonomous. That would make them feel safer when they're crossing the street. Those are also the people who would like to have an autonomous car themselves, more than other groups that we looked at. Well, and one of the things you brought up, which I thought was really interesting, is how do you communicate as a pedestrian with an autonomous car? Because normally, like, if I'm going to do something crazy, I'm going to make eye contact with the driver first to be like, hey... On your toes, man. I'm going to run out in front of you. But I can't do that with an autonomous car. And so how do we start thinking about crossing the street in front of one or those standoffs that happen when the car's like, you're here. I got to stop. And you're like, you're there. I'm not going to go. What you're raising there is quite interesting because, of course, once we get into a situation where there are actually autonomous cars out there on the streets, it doesn't mean that that's the only thing that's going to change. So actually, the whole traffic situation is going to change fundamentally. And one of the things we looked into was uh, the fact that, you know, you have all these street signs and stuff up in the air. But if you're going to be uh, more focused on what you're doing with your smartphone, maybe, or other things, you're looking down, you know. So people would actually have like to have things embedded in the payments, for example. And potentially also, of course, they should be able to look on, on what's going on with the cars from a sort of a not having to look up in the air kind of perspective all the time. So we thought, well, hey, you know, self-drive, it's not just for the cars. It's for us we're, when we're walking, we're doing other things. We need some self-drive kind of functionality as pedestrians as well. Awesome. This is like, oh, the billboard industry, it's going to go kaput. (laughs) Well, I could add to that, that another trend we're talking about here, we call augmented personal reality. And actually, that's about how you will be using AR potentially to customize or personalize what you see around yourself in the world. So maybe billboards are not going to go kaput per se. But how about if you can decide what you want to have on those billboards yourselves? So I find this trend really disturbing because we're already living in such a filter bubble as consumers of information and even, you know, look at the U.S. elections this year and you're kind of like, ah, filter bubbles are bad. So when I think about augmented personal reality, I'm like, oh, my God, I could I could avoid seeing things I don't want to see. And that's a little scary. Yeah, actually, I, I tried one of the, there, there are a couple of new Tango, Project Tango phones coming out here at CES. Asus released one uh, yesterday, the Asus Zenfone AR. So I, I decided to try it out. And actually, I, we had a bit of a hole in the wall of our, dis- our sort of screen here at CES. And I decided to put some piece of furniture in front of that. It was pretty cool because I could do that on the screen. And then each time I looked at it, the furniture was still there. So I didn't have to see the hole in the wall. That's not such a bad thing. If you talk, talk about personalization, actually, we, we tend to talk about personalization as a good thing, right? And all of a sudden now, with this echo chamber, social silos kind of discussion, we decided it's just a bad thing. I think it's actually a human thing. There's some good and some bad things with this. If you think about your neighborhood, where you live, maybe your other people li- a bit like you living in that neighborhood. Is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? I think it's part of human life. And that's what's happening online as well. We're actually turning the online world into our digital neighborhood, as it were. And I think it's only human that we would like to see people that are a bit like us, ourselves out there. And of course, there are some ramifications of that that we need to deal with going forward. That's true. And I can actually now, when I'm walking through the neighborhood, my neighbor has a hideously colored door and I could just be like, make it something pretty. 
You guys also, because you conducted your focus groups for this, or some of them with the VR users, you guys discovered something else that totally resonated with me. So just go ahead. You call it bodies out of sync. And I was like, oh, is that like, it's like Drake dancing. But instead, it's actually... Well, it's actually about the fact that, you know, there's a lot of technology change and, uh, and sometimes it's hard to keep up, right? Mentally speaking, but it's also hard to keep up physically speaking. So when we did VR, virtual reality research in virtual reality worlds, we realized that a lot of the people were there were already talking about getting their VR legs. And we said, what's, what's VR legs? Well, it's, it's a bit like, you know, oh, seamen, they used to talk about sea legs. So you need to get used to this sort of this, uh, this, uh, the waves coming and going and not become seasick from that. And that's what's happening actually also with virtual reality. And the same thing goes for autonomous cars, if you think about that. So one of the visions for autonomous cars is that you have your mobile living room in the car or your mobile workspace or something like that. But if you've tried reading in the back of the bus, well, some of us can do it. Others can't. We, we need car sickness pills. And consumers are telling us that, you know, this is probably going to be even more important going forward. That's all well and good for the big picture. But what can CES tell us about what to expect for 2017 when it comes to the smart home? For that, I turn back to Jason Johnson of August to get his take. Voice is really becoming a mainstream interface for the home, and all of the announcements of the companies that are integrating voice capabilities into their products tells us this is really moving to mainstream. You know, Amazon, the Echo devices paved the way for others to integrate that capability and allow us to, you know, to do a lot of great things in our home by not having to pull our phone out of our pocket and open an app. What seems certain is that we're still not getting a single standard to make all of our devices interoperate. Grant Erickson, the president of the Thread Group, says we're probably going to have to wait. I think it's going to actually be a while, Stacey, until we see that convergence. Uh, There's a lot of different value propositions that each of the different players bring to the table. Uh, Zigbee, again, has a very, very strong uh, history of strong products with their applications. Google and Nest and Weave bring their own value to that ecosystem. NOCF and IOTivity, of course, have a lot of value that they bring. And so I think for each of those different verticals and the strengths that they bring, that's going to play out for a while. And that's um, going to probably be maybe three to five years until we really see consolidation. And it may, in fact, be that they all exist for a long time. And there's interoperabilities and gateways and other solutions that come into the market to make sure all these things work well together. As a consumer, what does this mean if I'm like, crap, do I buy my light bulbs now? What do I do? Absolutely. There's no reason to wait. There's great solutions. There's integrators who make all this stuff work together. No reason to wait. Before we get too mired into the standards debate, consumers should prepare for another challenge hitting the market in 2017. Subscription plans. Zach Sapola, the CEO of Particle, an IoT development platform, explains why his customers are rethinking how they charge for connected products. So we see some customers who are trying to operate their businesses the way that harbor businesses have always operated. It costs me $40 to make the thing. I sell it for $100. There's $60 left. I split it with the distributor. Everybody goes home happy. That's the old-fashioned way of selling hardware. But with IoT, there's an ongoing cost associated with the product. Either you're paying a platform company or you're paying a cellular data plan or you're paying someone to host your cloud software. Something costs money on an ongoing basis. And If you behave in an old-fashioned way, you get frustrated because your margin is constantly eaten away. Other companies are relying on ongoing revenue streams, like consumables reordering, like 
subscription fees to make the economics work for an IoT product. And those companies are generally more successful. Now, that requires educating customers, and it often works better in industrial and commercial environments where companies are more willing to pay a recurring revenue for ongoing value. And consumers are still warming up to that. But those companies are working out, and the companies with a fixed margin and ongoing costs are struggling to figure out how to make their business work. And is there a way for that to work? It works if you grow fast enough. It works if your sales grow faster than your cost does and and you have exponential growth. It works. But if that doesn't happen, you end up holding the bag of a lot of cost without revenue to support it. And ideally, you're doing that while you grow and eventually you're going to pop a subscription plan or something on top of it. Or some other way to create ongoing value. I think Nest is a good example of that. It's fundamentally a a product that you pay a fixed cost for, but they have other ways engaging with power companies to do demand response. There are other sources of revenue that either they do today or they can do in the future that eventually close the gap. Hopefully, alternative revenue streams give Nest the chance to last. Otherwise, Google will. But all other connected products out there should be working hard to add features worth paying for. I'll end the podcast on what feels like an optimistic note. Manufacturers are thinking about their business models and how to keep supporting these products through several iterations of new standards or upgraded technology. Much has been made of Intel introducing a smart card format that would allow device makers to add more brains to their products down the road. The product would have to have an Intel processor inside and would need a slot that would fit the card. But it's a nice way of thinking ahead for a device that could live for 10 to 20 years in your home. Thus, I'll end with Corey Cerise of Chamberlain, who's back to spell out how he thinks this race to fit standards and more features on a product will play out for the time being. I'll give you a hint. It's going to involve more hubs. You know, I think it's an interesting challenge when our goal as Chamberlain is to build a quality, highly reliable product that will last for 20 years. And technology changes every two. And we're trying to accommodate that in our product goals. And what we want to do is say, here are accessories and ways for you to keep up with technology's pace without just tearing out the entire garage opener. Nobody wants to do that. We know that. So we launched a product, announced the launch of a product uh, that will come out in April called the MyQ Homebridge that will allow existing MyQ users the ability to upgrade to HomeKit as an additional accessory to their either existing garage opener with MyQ or to MyQ Garage. All right, y'all get ready for more bridges, more hubs. We're almost through with this year's special CES edition of the Internet of Things podcast. We'll do a final word from our sponsor, and then I'm going to tell you my favorite device from the whole show. So, Vijay, what does 2017 look like for the Open Connectivity Foundation? Sure. So we can look at it from different vectors. First and foremost, watch out for product announcements from member companies of OCF announcing that they have certified products in the market. Number two, one of the key goals is for us to make sure that the OCF ecosystem and the all-seen ecosystem completely, uh, the devices from these two ecosystems can talk to each other very transparently. So that is going to be out there in 2017. Beyond that, OCF is going to start putting resources into more verticals and build specification for other verticals like healthcare, industrial, transportation, etc. And in IoTivity, from an open source perspective, you're going to see support for more additional platforms, whether it's hardware, operating systems. There's already a constrained implementation of IoTivity that is out there for embedded devices. You'll see that getting enhanced. 
and you'll start to see more and more features to expand into new areas like enabling the better connectivity options to the cloud, bridging into other ecosystems, non-OCF ecosystems in a transparent way. All right, y'all. It's time for my favorite device. It's been roundly mocked in the press, but my favorite device from the entire CES was the Microbot Push. This is a $50 robot that you attach to a button on a dumb appliance, and you can program it, and it pushes the button for you. Thus, my coffee maker, which is not smart but costs a lot of money, I can now make it smart by adding this button presser thingy to it. This is not a device for the mainstream, but I really liked it. And that's it for the special CES edition of the Internet of Things podcast. We'll be back with our regular podcast time on Thursday with Kevin and I. And in the meantime, if you want more IoT news, sign up for Stacy Knows Things, my newsletter that shares all of the news that's fit to print every week on the IoT. You can find it at stacyoniot.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week on the Internet of Things podcast. And if you don't get enough IoT news from this show, feel free to sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyoniot.com. 